Hello and welcome to the Delphian podcast. Delphian is an artist-led nomadic gallery focusing on emerging and early career artists. Each episode will feature a different art world practitioner, from artists and gallerists to collectors and curators. If you liked today's episode, please like, share and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Delphian podcast. I'm Nick J.S. Thompson and with me today, as always, is Benjamin Murphy. Hello. Today we're joined by arts writer and critic Tabish Khan. Um, Tabish writes for Londonist, FAD and others and is a trustee of ArtCan. And as well as all of those things, he is one of the Delphian Open Call 2020 invited judges. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you Thanks for joining us in your own house. <laughs> so for those that might not know you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into arts writing? Sure, I can tell you the story. Um, so a lot of people who do know me may not know that um, my background is nothing to do with arts. So I studied, well, let's start right at the beginning. When I was going to school, I wasn't even that interested in art at all. I don't have any family interested in art. I don't really have any friends who are that interested in art. And I was very much a man of science. And I went to university and I studied biomedical science, specializing in human anatomy. So a lot of dissecting dead bodies, which was varied and interesting. Um, And then once I came out of that, I decided, well, research isn't for me. And I stumbled into a job in the energy sector, which is still my full-time day job to date. Um, And while I was starting out in the energy sector, I would be on the London Underground, as most people are, commuting. And I would look up and see those adverts that say exhibition at Tate, Royal Academy, uh, Courtauld, Somerset House, those sorts of places. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about this. So maybe I should go check them out. So I started going to a few. I really enjoyed it. Um, can't for the life of me remember which one triggered the love of it. Uh, Do you remember then, which was the first one? No, that's the thing. It really bothers me. It'd make a great story if I remember which was the first one, but I can't. <laughs> Um, so I started going, I started really enjoying it, started branching out. And then a cousin said, why don't you write your own blog back when blogs were still a relatively new thing? So I started writing a blog and I thought, well, this is interesting, but how do I get it out to more people? And at the time I approached a few websites. One was Londonist at the time. It was none of the writers were paid they had editors but they didn't have any paid writers and they were very much starting out they had no arts coverage or very little arts coverage so I just wrote to them and said do you want an arts writer this is what I've been doing and they were like sure we'll take a we'll take a gamble on you Uh, the irony being Londonist being the professional outfit it is today would um would not take a gamble on someone who was as amateur as I was back then but obviously the timing's just all all worked out and now occasionally I will see a Londonist four or five stars on those very tubes posters that started my journey and those will be my four or five stars so it's <laughs> it's lovely to see my journey come full circle. Nice so do, are you particularly drawn to figurative work because of your history and anatomy? I don't know if I am you'd think I would be I weirdly enough I am particularly drawn to taxidermy um, yeah. but that's actually related to anatomy not directly but I do like it um, and I quite like anything that's quite gruesome and grisly so maybe that's where it comes from yeah you've been to Hunterian Museum I love the Hunterian yes and I'm waiting for it to 
think it's in the middle of a three-year refurbishment so yeah and these refurbishments always go up longer than you expect so <laughs> waiting to see it come back um yeah so um <clears throat> what are arts writers like yourself doing now that the lockdown's begun and there's no exhibitions happening yeah probably i mean it's funny people said to me surely once a lockdown happens you're always so productive pre-lockdown you would be just as productive uh, inside lockdown and to be honest i haven't actually been as productive and i think it's largely because i'm always driven by external deadlines and there's not much on me right now because londonist is writing a lot less most of the staff have been furloughed i'm still writing a weekly top five for fad magazine i occasionally have written a blog post which i haven't done in seven years so that's quite nice uh, but i'm actually just um thankfully financially secure due to the energy day job as it were so i'm actually just taking a bit of a breather i'm actually enjoying a bit more engaging with the wider arts which i never have time for and at the moment everything's on youtube right now so in the last two weeks i've probably watched or listened to opera ballet theater classical music the whole gamut that i would never see normally because i'm too busy with art so it is quite nice to take a little bit of a breather though i'm sure i'll be right back on it once everything uh, resurges post lockdown have yeah. you have you baked any banana bread <laughs> i haven't baked any banana bread no i'm a terrible baker all my neighbors are bakers and they're just like going to overdrive and leaving stuff on my doorstep and i feel like i'm not <laughs> i'm not putting my weight on my in my block of flats <laughs> I, just, I noticed that the the um top fives you've been doing on fad have changed slightly since the lockdown as well so they've become like top five podcasts or top five other things that you can see books you did a book one the other day didn't you yeah i did a book one as well um it's fun just to mix it up because obviously just focusing on exhibitions may not work and obviously online there's a lot of online but not as many as there were offline um but it's tricky doing that because i always feel like a bit of a fraud like when i say top five art films Yes, they are five that I really like, but I've probably only seen a total of like 12. So it's not <laughs> like I've got the, the whole gamut to pick from. Well, in exhibitions, I was known for being that guy who saw loads. So then my top five felt like it was very refined because I've seen hundreds. Yeah. Well, in the films, it's a bit like, well, I'm just kind of making it up as I go along. But clearly, nobody's called me out on that and told me to stop doing it. So I'll well, they, they might do now that you've announced that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they might do, but, you know, part of being a critic is people come after you. It's fine. You just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> so in, do you see critique as being an art form in itself, almost? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've never really thought of it that way. Uh, but I suppose it is. You know, everything everyone does as a job is gen and anything that's creative is generally an art form in a sense and there is a skill to it and i am by no means a master of it and yeah i suppose it's just it's a bit like an artistic practice in the sense that you're constantly refining it and revisiting it and see what you can do different see what you can do better um and obviously getting feedback from others and seeing how you can Im improve it there was there's um an essay written by oscar wilde called the critic as artist where he talks about um the critic adding more substance to an artwork that may not have even been present um, when the artist created it. Um, do you think that critics have a certain responsibility towards the artists they write about and the artworks they write about? Okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I will look that Oscar Wilde piece up. It reminds me of, I'm sure we all read Shakespeare when we were at school. 
And I remember when I was reading Shakespeare and the teacher would say something along the lines of, and by saying this, Shakespeare meant this. And me being difficult as I was, but obviously too shy to express this as a child, was that I thought to myself, did he really mean it? Or have people just ascribed meaning to it in the centuries that have gone since he wrote it? You know, it's like, what what of that did he actually intend? And what is analysis that's happened post? And I, I believe that's true with artwork because art is one of the most subjective visual art of the art forms. So I always say to artists, once you create a work and you put it out there, you've kind of lost ownership of it because how everyone sees it is their interpretation. And you may not have intended it, you may not have meant it to happen, but that's how they're interpreting it. And then it's kind of everyone else, it takes a life on its own, whoever's looking at it. So I do think there is something that you can add to it. You can take it in different directions and not just critics do that, but everyone who views the artwork does it in that sense. And in terms of um, critics adding something to art, it's an interesting thing because people always want to have uh, critics writing about their work and having critical acclaim. And and it's interesting how that how that gives it a new life. I remember talking to artists and sometimes you write so much you forget what you've written. And I was talking to someone who was studying at Sotheby's, I think. I think it was Sotheby's or Christie's. And she was like, yes, I was um, I was researching an artist. And when I researched them, your name came up. And I was like, oh, I don't remember writing about that artist. And sure enough, I Googled and it was me. I did, I did write about this artist. But I just completely forgotten it. And it's it's got its own life now. It just kind of goes on. Or, or another case of a, a young artist, a street artist, did a mural in Elephant and Castle. And I wrote about it. And I didn't really think much of it. I, I ummed and ahed about whether it was worthy of an article on Londonist, but I did one in the end. And later, someone got in touch with me saying, oh, based on that, I commissioned her to do a mural somewhere else. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that's the nicest thing, actually, about being a critic, is when you write about exhibitions or recommend them, is that artists do well out of it, or even other people who would not have known of an exhibition go see it and they love it. I think that's great because you are sort of exposing people to something they wouldn't normally come across. So how so how can artists go about getting their work written about? It's um it's a tricky um it's a tricky proposition. I suppose it's like being the sometimes I feel for artists because when they're trying to get their work written about, it's almost like being the most unattractive person on Tinder or something. You know, you've got to swipe <laughs> right at about five hundred before someone swipes back on you. And I feel like that's what artists are up against because they pitch so much at critics. And the truth is most people don't, you know, won't look at it. I remember I've got a rule, which I call the three second rule, which is every email that comes to me, I will give it three seconds to kind of make an impact on me. Um, obviously, only if it's relevant. You know, the amount of emails I get about exhibitions in New York when I don't write about New York or even stuff like, I don't know, auctioning antique silverware or do I want an advanced copy, copy of an erotic novel? I'm like, not really. Uh, <laughs> you just get all sorts thrown at you in terms of press. And at least I look at emails. I, I remember someone mentioning to me, it was a sort of one of the big broadsheets. They have a, they have an art at name of the newspaper.co.uk email address. And I think they were getting something like 4,000 emails a day into that inbox. I'm like, is anyone even looking at that? 
at, at best it's an intern at worst there's nobody looking at it and it's just filling up so it is like you're in against this massive tide uh, so i always say to um artists just make sure that when you are pitching your email it's it's catchy and to the point um it's amazing how many times i get emails from artists and you know the, the clues in the name visual arts and there's no image and you always go, oh, what do, what do you want me to take away from this, given that I can't see your work? Um, and also you need to kind of, everything should be on the first bit that pops up on the email. You know, what's the exhibition? When's it on? Where is it? What are the dates? What's what's in it? It's surprising how many times I'll read a statement by an artist, and I'm three paragraphs down, and I still don't know what they do. It's like, are you a painter, <laughs> a photographer, a sculptor? I mean, just the really basics, the real basics need to stay up front. And then you can delve into the depths and link to an essay about your work if someone's interested. That's great. But to start with, you just got to hook them. It's that whole, I know it's a very marketing speed, but you know, that whole elevator pitch where you only get like 30 seconds to make an impression, but it's even shorter in email. So, you know, I need it to be very to the point and that's probably the way I am. So I like it being very succinct. So that's... um. That's a, a good example of how things can be kind of formatted and to the point. Can you give us um, maybe an example or maybe a few examples of times when people have done something that has been memorable or been catchy um, that's grabbed your attention? Um, a few experiences I have was an artist, uh, I can mention her name, her name's Abigail Box. She's no longer in the UK now, but I remember I wrote about her article when I was starting, I wrote about her exhibition, sorry, when I was starting out in the art world. And I went to her private view and you know what private view is like. It's busy, it's full of people. And she was chatting to me and she kept getting interrupted by friends who want to congratulate her on the fact that she had a show, um, which I understand, of course, right? And it's perfectly natural. And we exchanged details. And the next day, I think it might be the next day or the day after, she actually emailed me to say, I appreciate we didn't get a proper chance to chat at a private view, but I'm going to this private view of another artist." So obviously that artist will be the the main focus of that private view. Do you want to go together and we can catch up properly while we're there? So therefore, one, she's following up. Two, she's recognizing that she didn't give me that much time. And three, it's not out of my way because that's another artist that I might potentially write about. So I'm not having to give up my time for her, as it were. It's something I would have done naturally. So it kind of flowed really well. And I always use that as a good example of how to to address it really well. Another one, if you're doing it just by email, would be, you know, mentioning that they read an article of by by me recently and they really liked what I thought of this artist. Hopefully it was sincere, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> to do that and then because the thing is, you know, when you ask people, if you reference something that's gonna put them to, for want of a better word, in their happy place, they're already liking you before they know you. You know, for example, if I mentioned to someone I went on holiday recently, if they asked me, oh, well, next time email me, like a few weeks later, they're like, how was your holiday? Or if I said I was going on holiday, like, how was your holiday? Most people's holidays are good. So when you mention that to people, they're going to say, oh, they're already in a positive light. They're thinking about this is this person's actually asking and genuinely interested in me and is not um, not just interested in me writing about their work. I mean, a poor example would be, people I've talked to, had a nice conversation with, exchange business cards or contact details. Um, and then I don't hear from them. 
or they've taken my contact details, so I have no way of contacting them. I don't hear from them until sort of six months later when they're having their show. And then you go, well, any kind of good currency you built up with me now has been lost because you just feel very transparent that you only took that contact detail because you wanted me when you've got a show rather than trying to actually build a relationship. Mm. There's some good hot tips there, I think. Mm. Um, so have you ever had, um, say, artists or galleries sending you unsolicited gifts or, say, sending you a book or sending you things through the post? Have you ever had oh, yeah. any experience of it being a bit much? I've had quite a lot of things um, sent to me, freebie. I suppose often it, the difficulty is that do you feel obligated to write about it? And the thing is, you can't pretend you're inhuman and made of stone. Of course, it puts you in, makes you feel positive about them when they give you something like that. But as an example, that's what all of the big institutions do. So if you think of someone like the VNA, British Museum, Royal Academy, Tate, right? They all have their big blockbuster exhibitions that we're all aware of. Now, they have a press view, which is for all the assembled press, and that could be several hundred people. But for the few critics they know who are definitely going to be reviewing them, if the exhibition's ready, they normally allow them to come in pre-press view. So before the press view, there'll be an opportunity to come in, basically have the exhibition to yourself. And obviously at the end of it, you get the big fat 35 pound catalog, wherever much they are worth given to you. And of course they know what they're doing. And of course you know what yeah. they're doing, right? It's all part of the game to make you feel as comfortable as you can to view this exhibition in a as pleasant an environment as you can. And I remember, you know, I once went to an exhibition at the British Museum and the entirety of their massive museum space was just me at one end and Jonathan Jones from The Guardian at the other end. <laughs> Uh, never met the guy because we were always too far apart. <laughs> but, but I thought it was quite funny that, you know, that's what you get. And that's probably the nicest privilege I get. On the sort of commercial gallery end, it often is kind of like the invitations to the dinner after the private view. So I'm always a bit sceptical of accepting things unless I know I'm definitely writing about it. If I know that I'm writing about it and I've already got my mind up on what I think about it, then I'll take I'll accept it because I feel like I've made my decision and I won't accept it if I feel like it's wrong. Like if I know that I don't like this exhibition and I'm not going to write it and if I am going to write it, I'm not going to give a positive light. I may not accept a freebie on those grounds. But then then again, I mean, some artists play that game really well. Like I've had a few artists who have who have put me in a work. And I was like, wow. well, if I'm in the work, then of course I'm going to share it, aren't I? <laughs> I mean, recently there was um, there was an artist who uh, emailed me out of the blue saying, he's saying that as everyone's in lockdown, the way everyone operates is through a Skype or Zoom call. So he's like, if people send me screenshots, then I will, um, then I'll paint them. So I sent him a screenshot of my friends and I, we have a Friday night call, all the guys I went to school with every Friday night during this lockdown period. And he's painted it now and you'll be able to see it on my Instagram profile. And I'm like, well, of course I'm going to share that because it's me. <laughs> and then you've got a free share, essentially. So if your work lends itself to that style, then that's an easy in. Yeah, definitely. So when, when you go to the private views and stuff, what do you do first? Do you read the press release first or do you look at the work first? I think at first, I mean, assuming it's the kind of private view where I can actually see the work as opposed to those <laughs> private views where I can't see the work. Uh, whenever I go to a gallery, often I will try and go pre-private view if I can. 
if they'll let me in a bit early or right at the beginning of Brightview view when it's not busy you get there and you say do you know who i am and i've never used that line oh tanish of course please come in i I would feel way too pretentious ever using (laughs) that line it would feel so wrong wouldn't it Uh, unless unless i said it as a joke it would feel very wrong um but yeah often i'll email them before and say can i come in like five before the private view begins or dead on at six because art people don't turn up no one turns up on time at a private view right so (laughs) so i'll do that and the first thing i do is i look at the work because the work's got to speak to me in some way uh, or intrigue me enough that I now want to read about it in the press release. Um, and then, and often that can work two ways. So often I can see the work, and go, oh, I'm interested in what it is, read the press release, and go, oh, I'm even more interested or same level. Occasionally a poorly written press release can bring my interest down uh, because it might not chime in my head the, the words and the artwork, it may not line up. So. That's how I often do it. And then obviously, if I've got any more questions, um, I will ask someone. But generally, if a press release is doing its job, your questions should be very much uh, in the detail rather than anything specific about the work, because that should all be covered in the press release. So let's talk press releases. What's the biggest press release faux pas that you've seen? Or what, what should artists avoid? Artists and galleries, what should they avoid in a press release? I feel like the, the obvious one is the, the prevalence of art speak. You know, I'm not a big fan of it. And I mean, you know, if you, if you feel like you need a thesaurus to read a press release, you know, or sorry, a dictionary <laughs> to read a press release, then it just feels like, what's the point? Or, or someone has gone through a thesaurus to make, smarten it up and gone, oh, look, let's use that word because it's fancy. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a famous quote by, uh, I might get this wrong, but it's Richard Feynman, the physicist, who once said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. You know, if you if if you can't boil it down to really basics, then you know, why why are you writing all this flowery text around it? And it's and you know, I mean, and come on, people, paragraphs. Occasionally paragraphs. When <laughs> <laughs> you get a solid block of text, you're like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, uh, but yes, I, I like do you know what? Nobody uses these on press releases. I'd love a press release with bullet points. Love a good bullet <laughs> point. <laughs> really broken down. <laughs> and, uh, key bullets and then the rest. <laughs> Maybe some infographics. Yeah, good old <laughs> infographics. Um, yeah, and so that's Venn, that. Venn diagram. Yeah. Well, you know, break out all the stops there. I'm trying to think what else about press releases. Um yeah, the other, the, the other thing, this is just a side anecdote that always makes me laugh, which is, that, you know, when you pick up a press release and they're always very pristine if they're in paper. Some people have them in plastic, which is nice and reusable. But often you pick up in paper and you go around the gallery and you read it and you're like, all right, I'm leaving. I don't need the press release. I've got everything I need out of it um, or I've made my notes. or So I put it back. But when I put it back, I look at the fact that I've put back something that's a little bit crumpled now that I've been carrying my hand. And I always feel like the person behind the desk and I connect eyes. And there's a part of me thinking, I know that you're going to throw it away because it's now crumbled, <laughs> but I'm not going to throw it away. That's the important thing, that I'm not wasting paper. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're yeah. forcing them to be the, them to be the um, villain. I know, I think I am. I'm like, it makes my conscience slightly clearer. I feel, I feel like with the amount of press releases and catalogues that I get given, I feel like a few trees a year die just for me. <laughs> I was a bit guilty about that. 
You need to offset your um, exhibition visit in carbon somehow. Yeah, do you reckon they should have that uh, as sort of like um, a gallery? It's like if you're taking a press release, you've got to donate 2p towards saving the Amazon or something. <laughs> yeah. Contactless card reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always feel guilty at the end, like putting it back because also you don't want to throw it away in front of people while they're watching you as well it seems like that's that was rubbish let's throw the press release away <laughs> yeah i do wonder whether there's no one's really i think a few people have done this but like really simple things like qr codes right mm. yeah or something where you come in with your phone you can just scan something and you can get a press release on your phone that way you're not actually i suppose in the post covid era that's probably even safer because you won't be touching something that could potentially yeah. be carrying something i always find myself collecting the um like the the flyers galleries always well often make like really sturdy thick card flyers with a painting mm. like a postcard and then i've got and then i find them at home in drawers and stuff i'm like why have i kept this like what, what am i going to do with it i've got loads of them so I yeah. it's a quality thing though because like they look yeah. so well made you're like i want to keep this you know yeah 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 same with the exhibition catalogs i do think like do i ever revisit them but they are lovely works of art in themselves yeah yeah so you mentioned COVID. Um, what effect do you think that this pandemic will have on the art world long term, if any? Well, I think um, immediately, I think the problem is, I think it's kind of survival. I think people have nailed this down quite well, which is at the very top end. I mean, we might still see a few big corporations fail, uh, but hopefully not. And I think the same with the galleries, the very big, big galleries, I reckon, weather the storm. Okay, I'm not saying they're going to be financially great with it, but they'll weather it. The ones right at the bottom are doing sort of like pop-ups or emerging stuff will be able to kind of batten down the hatches and hang in there, I hope. It's the middle, the bit that you've got just big enough that they can afford a space um, and they've got a permanent space. They're the ones who are going to struggle. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, they're going to struggle so much because it's so hard. And even if they make it through, can they survive long-term after that? So that's kind of the immediate effect. And also... Once we're allowed out, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen, right? Like, for example, we still will need to do social distancing for the next six months. I think I heard someone say, I mean, obviously it doesn't bother me, but I've heard something saying hairdressers can't go for another <laughs> six months because it's too close contact. Yeah. And I think, well, what about something like the British Museum? That's like thousands of people rammed in to a small space. I suppose commercial galleries, as long as they stop private views and talks and tours, will be all right because there's never that many people in a commercial gallery at one time, normal hours, during normal hours. Yeah. So they'll be okay. But things like museums, I don't know what you'd do with that Tate Modern or something. How would you manage that to keep it socially distanced until so such time as we have a vaccine? or Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But, I mean, in terms of good things, I mean, obviously I mentioned the fact that press releases hopefully won't have as many of them, but I was hoping the travel will go down because I think there's a lot of, I mean, the, the air miles in the art world are in, obscene, aren't they? Yeah. And also sometimes you wonder like, what's the, I mean, this, I don't want to kind of go against my own kind and sort of like slating arts journalists here, but I do wonder like when, when people tell me, Oh, you know, you go to Venice Biennale or you go to art Basel, Miami or art Basel, Hong Kong, you'll say, you see the same people there. Now, if the gallery's gone to show work and to sell it, fair enough. They need to be there to sell work. But if you've got people like journalists joining, I'm like, I was like, 
it's it's Miami. There's there's plenty of good journalists in Miami, right? You don't need to send your own guys from London mm-hmm. over to Miami to write about something. Surely they can just hire someone there. Same with when they all come to freeze London. Surely you could just hire someone in London to write about it. I mean, it's not a shortage of journalists and arts journalists. So I find it rather strange that we're always like everyone needs to be seen to be following that circus. And it's it is a bit ridiculous. What effect do you think it's going to have on artists? I mean, artists, um, it's funny, like, obviously, artists are not immune to the anxiety of what this crisis is causing, nor are they immune to the financial impact if they've got jobs that, you know, and also if they're relying on works being sold, if they had art fairs booked out or gallery shows booked out for this time period. But they are one of the more generally seen as one of the more resilient ones. I know that a lot of artists told me that, well, most of my life is just like hunkered down in my studio working away. So while it feels like I've been forced to do that, I can still be quite productive and crack on with things. And obviously artists um, get inspiration from lots of different things. So I'm sure there will be a lot of COVID-related art coming out post. And of course, um, I'm sure you've seen it. Obviously, you guys are doing your own great initiative with the lockdown editions, but you've also seen things like the Artist Support Pledge, which has been which has been great for artists to be able to yeah. sell work. And everyone seems to be quite supportive and coming together, which is really nice to see, generally across society, but also within the arts. Yeah, it definitely feels like people are sort of clubbing together to try and support each other. It's, it's really refreshing to see. Yeah. So um, what do you wish that artists did more of? Hmm. I always wonder about that. Like, what should artists do more of? And and it's it's a tricky one because obviously I wouldn't want anyone, me to be directing anyone to make work of a certain kind because the whole point of artists is they're creative and they come up with different ideas. I always feel like there's um there's a few things that bother me. I think we talked about things like art speak, but we also talked about. I think because when artists are creating work, it's so much about what their vision they're trying to get onto onto paper or whatever medium they work in. Sometimes I don't think always that much consideration is given to the viewer and the viewer's experience of it. And I suppose that's a job for the artist, the gallerist and the curator, if there's one involved, about how to manage that. And I think that's the reason why I've always put, though even though some of my favorite artworks have been on the medium of video or film, on the whole, that's probably my most, is the most, the medium that I have the least time for most of the time. And I think it's because films are really hard thing to show. You know, um, it's, it's a case of, you know, you're, you go into a gallery and there's a film playing and it's an hour long and you think, well, I never, I didn't allow for an hour, but here I am. So do I change my plans to fit that in? What if it's half an hour in and it's got a narrative? I know they're always half an hour in. And you're like, well, do I need to leave and come back? Because uh, one of the things that's, uh, well, and then also, like, there's nowhere to sit down often. It's like sit on the mm-hmm. floor or a wooden bench. I'm like, it's not as comfortable as my sofa at home, right? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that's happened in this COVID crisis, a lot of video works have actually been released online to view. And that's been great for me. Like sat on my sofa, streaming it onto my TV. It's been the most comfortable video art viewing experience I've had in years. I appreciate some video needs an installation, but the ones that are just on screen, it's been better for me to be able to watch it from my sofa. And I do wonder whether 
post-COVID, any time a video is being shown in a gallery, it should also be shown on their website at the same time. I mean, one, I mean, it's not just about people avoiding the gallery. Of course, people will still go. But it also helps people like, I don't know, people who have accessibility issues, uh, who can't go to galleries or who can't afford to travel or don't want to have the carbon emissions of traveling. Like, you know, if I see a really, someone tells me there's a great show in New York, I'm not going to jump on a plane and go to New York just to see one show. You know, so the fact that I can, if it is possible, obviously, that I can view it from home makes a big difference. So on the flip side of that, what do you wish that artists did less of? Um, what did artists do less of? Um, aside from art speak. Aside from art speak, yeah. I, I mean, one thing that's always um, bothered me, uh, but I think this is not all artists, I should be clear. It's always been a subset. It's that kind of thing. Like, I often get a lot of people on Instagram just reach out to me and go, like, I'd really value your opinion on my work. And I always feel like, I don't know what to say to that. Like, yeah. genuinely, one is, obviously, I don't have the time to respond to everyone who does that. Which, So I always have to say no or just ignore them, which always feel very rude to do that. It's, because it's a case of, well, you know, if you're asking someone to put their time into really thinking about your work, that's a good session of, like, really analysing the work, thinking what they want to say. And if, and if there's no payoff for me in the end I always feel like well why would I do that you know mm. it's that whole thing they always teach you in like sort of if you do like negotiation training they're always like look for what the other person can get out of this and if there's nothing for them why would they engage with you so I feel like a lot of and it's not just artists people do this all the time they ask for something knowing that there's, there's no, they're offering nothing in return you think well why why do you think the other person's going to think oh that's a great idea yeah yeah. So um, a question that we ask everyone when we're coming to the end of a, a podcast is um, what advice would you give to an early career artist who is just starting out? To an early career artist, I would say just the important thing is just to get your work out there, whether that's in social media, whether that's on exhibitions, just show your work as much as you can. And I think a lot of people get very sort of self-conscious about, well, it's still early and I haven't quite figured out where I'm going it's just like just get exposure the more people see you the better it is um, enterprises if as long as you can afford to obviously show your work at art fairs likewise if it works out for you financially just make sure that you're visible because it all helps in a way in the sense of there, there's there's countless examples I'm sure of people who've seen work and maybe even if it wasn't their liking they mentioned it to someone else who mentioned it to someone else and the word just got round and eventually, you know, find, they'll find the right people. And secondly, I would say, um, well, I'll put a three in there. Second one, I would say is just have a bit more self-belief and confidence in yourself. You know, you're going to get knockbacks. That's the nature of life. But don't let that bring you down. And thirdly, it's just, you know, be comfortable with the fact that not everyone's going to like your work. It's just yeah, the nature of something that's highly subjective, right? And that includes me, right? Even if I think your work's terrible, right? obviously I'm not going to say that to someone's face, but even if I do, um, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because ultimately all you need to do is find enough people that like your work. And, you know, there are, there are 7 billion of us. So 
you know, it's not like a case of like if 10 people didn't like your work, I'm like, well, there's still another 6,999,990 left, right? So um, I, didn't, I didn't even do enough nines in that number. So there's um, there's loads of people out there. So I feel like everyone's everyone can be successful as an artist. It's just a case of finding how to do that. Um, and it doesn't mean that just because you've had a few setbacks that it's not going to work out. Oh, that's yeah. a really good positive way to, to wrap this mm. up. And any other questions that have come up throughout the discussion? Well, potentially one other that I was thinking of asking is what um, advice would you give to an early career writer wanting to get their work published? That's a tricky one because writing is like a, I always feel like, um, I always feel like a fraud when people ask me for advice. I remember ages ago, someone who wanted to be an art critic, another journalist emailed me to say, oh, I want some advice about becoming an art critic. And I just wanted to reach out to someone who had, quote, she put, made it. And I always felt like a bit of a fraud. I was like, well, I haven't made it, have I? Because I'm still working another job to pay the bills. So I feel like I still haven't made it, made it. Um, and it is tricky because there's not a huge amount of money in writing. That's sad, but it is true. So I think the most important thing is just constantly be writing stuff, even if it's like on your own blog or obviously if you are writing for someone for free, just make sure the trade-off works in your favor, as in they're just not taking everything from you, but you're also getting great exposure and uh, being seen by people. And you're also writing things you enjoy. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I don't write enough for myself, just out of pure pleasure, which is a shame. Um, also, I would say uh, try out lots of different people. You know, some people aren't going to um, want to publish your writing that's fine much like I said for artists and the other thing I would say is get comfortable with all the different mediums for promoting writing because I think the days have gone of someone being a writer like in a little room hidden away and they suddenly get discovered same with artists nobody gets discovered anymore right just make sure your social media presence is is out there people are seeing your writing get comfortable with things like talking to camera uh, talking on podcasts like this you know just the more feathers you have to your cap to spread your right, the, the gospel of your writing, as it were, then the better it is. Great. All right. Yeah. There we go. Podcast. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, th thank you for, thanks for joining us. Thank you.